0: On today's episode, I caught up with Jeff Martin, Senior Director of EAB's Advancement Forum. Jeff shares incredible insights into the key themes that will shape the advancement sector in the coming years. If you aren't familiar with the research that Jeff and his team produce, you're in for a treat, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Here we go. Greetings, Rays podcast listeners, and welcome to today's episode. I am thrilled to be hosting... Jeff Martin, who is the Senior Director of EAB's Advancement Forum. Welcome to the show, Jeff.
1: Thank you very much, Brent. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I will tell you, there are few people on the planet who have spent more time at advancement conferences than Jeff and me. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Uh, Jeff has been with EAB for almost 10 years. Is that right? And we are just hitting the 10-year mark here at Evertrue. So uh, we've got uh, 20 years of combined advancement experience, I think is what we can now start to say. Uh, Jeff, it is always a pleasure to spend time with you and the folks um, at EAB. And I definitely want to dive into some of your work and your research. You're actually uh, one of the first kind of industry partners that we've had on the show. Uh, We had uh, Arup Energy from Windfall Data, who is... Uh, a partner of Evertrue, uh, but mostly we've been featuring the work of uh, advancement leaders, uh, either uh, group uh, folks who lead a team or are uh, aspiring advancement professionals, but there are a few people who um, know more advancement leaders than you, and so I'm really looking forward to getting your perspective, but before we dive into that, who are you, where are you from, and how did you end up in this world of advancement?
1: Yeah, happy to share. So again, my name Jeff Martin. I'm with EAB. Uh, Essentially, I do advancement research, which means that I talk to lots and lots of advancement leaders zeroing in on some of their key challenges, up-at-night issues. I grew up a little bit in New Jersey, primarily in Northern Virginia. I went to school, uh, this little university, Brent, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's called Brown University. Uh, I think you beat me there by just a couple years, and after graduation, came back to D.C. I actually thought for a while that I'd pursue a PhD. But all my favorite professors told me, you know, take a little bit of time in the private sector, see if you like it. And I ended up stumbling into this job after a brief stint at, uh, funny enough, an American history publishing company. It's there for about a year. And then I came over to EAB. I had put into a job search engine education because I knew I liked it and research because I knew how to do it. And the job search engine said, how about this education research company? So I've been here almost 10 years now. Uh, I was on board with a launch of our advancement work back in 2012. And I've been there ever since.
0: So um, (laughs) Google to the rescue, education, research, (laughs) apply for the job. That's exactly how they draw it up in the commercials. Incredible. Um, So uh, you are based in Washington, D.C. And why don't you tell us just a little bit of uh, the, the EAB story. What is it EAB uh, for those who don't know? Uh, and, and I think that um, there's obviously been a significant evolution at EAB over the 10 years that you've been there. So maybe just sharing a little bit on the background of EAB and how things have evolved uh, over the last decade could be interesting.
1: Sure thing. Back in the, I think it was the 1970s, a company was founded called the Advisory Board Company that focused on doing research for executives across industries. They ended up specializing in healthcare. But back in 2007, they heard from a lot of the academic medical centers that they worked with that, you know, there are a lot of overlaps between healthcare and higher education. Have you ever thought about doing research? for higher education institutions. So in 2007, we launched a research membership for provosts and vice presidents of student affairs. The following year, we launched one for chief business officers. And in the years since then, we ended up uh, debuting about 10 different uh, research partnerships, research memberships for executives at four-year institutions. The Advancement Forum dates to 2012 Uh, Every single year, we poll our membership, identify the uh, biggest priorities, most urgent challenges that uh, executives for each of these memberships, so in my case, chief advancement officers and their leadership teams are facing, and then we do deep dive research into them. And in 2017, we actually spun off from the advisory board company. So for, that was late 2017, so two and change years, we've been A standalone company and growing very quickly.
0: That's uh, a great background and so you were really at the ground floor in 2012 of the establishment of what you would call a forum, the Advancement Mm -hmm. Forum, and you just spoke to it uh, briefly but what is a forum and why as a VP of Advancement might I be interested in being a part of, of the Advancement Forum?
1: Yep, so A forum, in my case, the Advancement Forum, is a membership uh, model for uh, executives within a particular vertical in higher education. So the Advancement Forum is a membership of about 220 chief advancement officers and their teams. Uh, A chief advancement officer will sign up and they'll get access to executive roundtables in in our DC offices. They'll be able to send a couple of their VPs to leadership summits that we convene where we share the research. We'll come on campus to present our findings and lead workshops around things like pipeline development, alumni participation, principal gift strategy, so on and so forth. We do extensive benchmarking around uh, staffing, invest- investments in fundraising production. So we're able to look at the ROI of advancement, put institutions in a cohort of their peers, Uh, But outside of any one of those individual services, we think of it as a thought partnership. We try and uh, work very closely in almost a one-to-one way with each one of our members, each one of our partners to uh, figure out, zero in on what it is that's keeping them from peak performance and trying to alleviate some of those roadblocks and bottlenecks with uh, the insights, the best practices, the innovative strategies that we're able to surface from across the membership and beyond. I feel like,
0: I'm glad you said peak performance, cause I've always thought of you a little bit like Equinox. You're like the Equinox of advancement leaders and you're like the lead personal trainer. And it's not inexpensive to go to Equinox, but you get a great product uh, and you get to be around like-minded people and so I feel like there's a little bit of that vibe um, with uh, with uh, EAB's Advancement Forum. I will say, not being a VP of Advancement, I'm a little jealous that I can't get a membership to EAB's uh, Equinox Club, but, um, but I, I'm grateful that you've been willing to spend time and share your perspective. So you now have, uh, my understanding is you personally have gotten to know around 200 chief advancement officers vps avps etc every year is that your portfolio i mean are you basically a a major gift officer with a <laughs> 200 person portfolio is that how we should think about it
1: a little bit uh so i focus primarily on uh, the research so i i have the pleasure and privilege of being able to call up uh, some of the most innovative some of the the smartest most effective chief advancement officers and AVPs in North America and pick their brain for an hour at a time. What are you doing? What's new? What problem uh, in the industry are others not seeing yet? And how are you solving it? I have an incredible uh, uh, team of colleagues, some of whom work with me on the research, others of whom they'll serve as, uh, we call them strategic leaders here. Those are the ones who in my mind are closest to a development officer they have a portfolio of institutions that they work with and they get to know those individuals very closely
0: got it so you're like the Dean who gets to spend time with the prospect but doesn't necessarily have to make the ask
1: yeah yeah I, I think that's a good metaphor
0: I like it um, so you mentioned that some of the folks really are visionaries and I'm not gonna ask you to pick favorites but who are some of the people in the sector that you really feel like you've learned from I mean I'm sure you feel like in a certain regard you've grown up professionally with some of these people. That's how I feel uh, with some of my kind of key, you know, customer mentors, let's call it. Um, who really stands out to you as being somebody that uh, you've enjoyed getting to know and, and really look to for perspective?
1: Yeah. Oh gosh. It's, it's hard to narrow it down to just a few people. So name for I don't <laughs> care. we've got time. It's
0: fine. Yeah. Uh,
1: for everyone that, that I'm not about to name okay. uh, that is, that is oversight, not not a, a deliberate exclusion. I point to folks like uh, Jane Parker at Auburn University, uh, who is, the, the intent I think is for her to maybe retire in the next few years, and it breaks my heart because I've uh, just very much enjoyed working with Jane for years now. Uh, Steve Rossfeld at University of Cincinnati is taking... Uh, uh, an incredible, incredibly insightful perspective towards gift officer productivity. Deanna Carlson Zink at University of North Dakota. Uh, Josh Newton at Emory University. He came from UConn. I've worked with him for a long time. Uh, Brent, I think you've presented with him in the past. No. He is a, a big digital thinker. Um, Josh Friedman at University of Miami. He came from Arizona State University. He's completely overhauling their major gift pipeline by actually building it into a pipeline, redefining what engagement looks like for mid-level or emerging donors. Um, Dexter Bailey, he was at Stony Brook, he's at Caltech now, has done incredible work. There, there are people all across uh, North America. Oh, Peter Fardy at Dalhousie University in Canada uh, is incredibly insightful. Very thorough and rigorous thinker. He actually just published uh, an article in an advancement journal that I've been proselytizing about for the past week or two around, not just how to, um, how to fund advancement without competing for the uh, with the academy for scarce budget dollars, uh, but also uh, he presents kind of a, a, a theoretical framework for the constraints that advancement leaders face in their work. Uh, so yeah, many, many folks that I've learned much from over the years
0: if you'd be willing to share that article, uh, we'd be happy to include it in the notes here with the show. Um, what advancement journal was that?
1: I think it, uh, I want to say it was the journal of advancement marketing. I forget the exact name of it.
0: Okay. All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll try to link to it, but I, but I'm not familiar with that. And, but I will say, you just named a lot of names who, uh, you know, 10 years ago, Uh, I would not have known a single one, probably even five years ago on our journey. I'm not sure that I would have. And it's exciting uh, to know almost everybody that you mentioned there. Uh, And I think it is reflective of how tight knit this community is. Uh, And so you've been able to spend time not only with the group you mentioned, but with hundreds uh, of other folks over the years. And I feel like that gives you some unique perspective. And so what I I thought I might do is just ask you uh, a couple of questions about uh, either your or their collective view on the sector. And then in a bit, I'd like to dive into some of the research that you shared at the recent AGB conference, Association for Governing Boards. We were just out there, which is when we re- reconnected in San Diego. Uh, Jane was there, Steve was there, Deanna was there, uh, really good group. And, um, and so we'll dive into some of those research findings here briefly. But before we uh, go there, I would just love to get your perspective. At this juncture, 10 years in, as we really get ramped up here in 2020, where do you think the advancement sector is over-investing and where is it Mm under-investing?
1: It's a good question. Uh, I would say there's likely a good degree of over-investment and alumni participation focused strategies. When we launched the Advancement Forum back in 2012, there was uh, an incredibly high degree of urgency around participation and young alumni giving in particular. Donor counts had fallen off a cliff, had uh, been doing so since the early 90s. And there was a recognition that if uh, our, the top of the donor funnel uh, completely contracts, then we're going to have no major gift prospects 10, 20, 30 years down the road, which is certainly true. In the years since, we've actually seen young alumni participation rates uh, tick up significantly. They almost doubled, I think it was between 2013 and 2018, but it's come at the expense of giving from older individuals with the scarce budget dollars that Advancement has. I would say this isn't uniformly true, but some leadership teams direct too many of these dollars towards uh, strategies, direct response strategies, transactional giving strategies that are designed to bring in as many donors as possible, Uh, but it's at very low levels and it's without an eye to what the pathway out of that gift towards something much larger would look like. So I would say quite a bit of overinvestment participation. I would venture probably underinvestment in pipeline development. I've talked to countless advancement leaders who say between... The top of the annual fund and the bottom of either the major gift level or whatever it is, whatever level it is that major gift officers will get out of bed for. There isn't ownership. There isn't accountability. There isn't strategy. It's a a bit of a no man's land of donors who are just waiting for a gift officer to show up and otherwise are getting one size fits all appeals Uh, someone once remarked to me that if someone's asked for say a $25,000 gift it's almost never going to be their full capacity at that moment if their full capacity is $25,000 they're going to be asked for a smaller annual fund gift because the annual fund quote unquote owns them or it'll be someone whose capacity is significantly greater and a gift officer is asking them for that as a stepping stone gift. So I would say the mid-level and pipeline development among those emerging major gift donors is a big area of underinvestment.
0: Very hot topics, and we're hearing a lot of the same issues, and we refer to it as the missing middle. I mean, there really is just this massive gap in experience uh, for the donor between when you are actually in a gift officer portfolio being nurtured uh, on a one-to-one basis in an ongoing manner. Uh, but until you get to that point, you are uh, most likely going to be mass marketed to with very little true relationship building, uh, save for one-off examples. And uh, we just, I, I had a coincidentally, a post on LinkedIn yesterday that got uh, a little bit of traffic just around kind of questioning giving days. And, and uh, what, what I basically said was, so often I'm hearing conference talks about the quote-unquote successful giving day that could be a tactic as part of what is actually not a very successful overall annual giving effort. And so we're celebrating or yep. even giving case awards to this amazing day at a time mm-hmm. when it's uh, we're still seeing negative trends. I had somebody, uh, uh, a woman who is a uh, consultant, uh, sorry, who had been a consultant who now works at Union College and previously I uh, had been at uh, at Vassar College who said that she'd love to write a blog post about why giving days need to die. But I might be ejected from the philanthropic sector altogether. <laughs> so it, it, what is your view on that topic? And I bring it up because I do feel like uh, the giving day was one example of a really significant investment in staff time. In some cases, technology to really attack this uh, young alumni donor base. And what we feel and what you just indicated as well is that it could make us really take our eye off the ball and make the missing middle even uh, more missing.
1: Yeah, It's, it's a tough question. I like your perspective. It's provocative. I like provocative. It's a tough question because we do still have to bring donors into the top of that funnel. Right. And Giving Days can be, they've shown themselves to be a useful urgency lever for donors who will look at the latest appeal in their direct mail pile and say, eh, why now? This is just more recycling. Uh, Giving day, it's time-bound, it's urgent, it's the sort of thing that inspires people to act. The things I would say are missing from giving days is, I I guess the first thing I would point to is accountability or you could say ownership of the donors. Giving days are a come one, come all event, which is great, but at the same time, are we getting the right people to give? And once we deal with that accountability or ownership piece, the prioritization of donors, what's the follow through? So great, someone gives to a giving day, what's the next step? If the next step is, oh, we'll ask them again for next year's giving day, that doesn't advance the relationship in any meaningful way. I would. I would venture that there that a giving day should be an early step in a relationship that, over the course of the year, includes multiple personal communications, engagement touches, content, and experience that are molded around the individual's preferences and passions. If uh, the pipeline development strategy is just a one-off giving day, then the habit of giving that we idolized actually isn't much of a habit at all.
0: Yeah, look, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that uh, where I'd love to see those those conference presentations evolve to is, uh, look, we did a giving day. We had 3,000 donors, uh, 1,200 of whom were first-time donors. And of those 1,200 first-time donors, 115 were rated at a million dollars and above, but not assigned to gift officers. And we have now assigned 115 people into Discovery Portfolios. The gift officer went out, stewarded those individuals, and thanked them for their participation in Giving Day. We've now visited 50% of that population. Uh, so let's yep. call it 57 and a half people. And we have now uh, generated uh, $4 million in major gift pipeline thanks to the acquisition work that was done on our Giving Day. That's where we'd Mm -hmm. like to to see it get to um, that there really is a handoff uh, and sort of immediate stewardship, especially for folks who have indicated capacity. The worst thing that could happen is a a donor with $5 million in net worth makes a gift on giving day and doesn't hear again until the next giving day, which I do think is unfortunately the status quo.
1: One of the biggest drivers of donor attrition is that they forget that they gave, which I would say is our fault we should not let them forget that first gift, that giving day gift should be a trigger that sets in motion a whole package of stewardship, communications and cultivation. One of the things, one of the capacity limiters that advancement faces is that there's a lot of unintentional bureaucracy or inertia that goes into setting in motion all those events, it's very people dependent. It's very manual. I had an experience a couple years ago that suggested to me it doesn't have to be that way. I, I was doing some work on annual giving. I was looking at uh, technology, specifically marketing automation. I think I downloaded a white paper from IBM. And to get the white paper, I had to put in my email address and phone number. I said, okay, sure, whatever. About 10 minutes after I downloaded that white paper, my desk phone started ringing with a sales representative from IBM curious why I was investigating marketing automation. Right. They, and of course, that wasn't someone on their end who saw me come in and said, oh, I need to go tell John Doe, sales representative, to call Jeff. Everything was automated. Right. It was all triggered and all of the pieces were put in motion automatically.
0: Right. So what that probably meant is that there was some sort of territory assignment or that EAB was already an account in their system. And so if lead comes from EAB, then send alert to XYZ rep, who then does the outreach. And then, you know, that, so that, I mean, that really makes me wonder on giving day, uh, somebody makes a gift at 10 a.m. Should they be getting a thank you call at 10, 10 a.m. from whomever is the Uh, assigned representative in their, you know, quote unquote territory as a donor.
1: Thank you, call. Thank you, email. Thank you, text, some channel, not a form. Thank you. That is clearly mass blasted. That's just junk in one's inbox or voicemail box, some sort of personal touch, which doesn't mean that a person has to write it. It could honestly be. And and this is a, a bit of a controversial opinion. Uh, As far as I can tell in the world of advancement, it could be that every donor in John Smith's portfolio who gives during giving day gets an email from John Smith, but it's just sent out automatically. John or even someone in the communications uh, department has drafted it in advance and it it just blasts out. It looks personal, but it's done at scale.
0: I think the nuance there, because obviously uh, there has been tremendous investment in this idea of automating personalization at scale is that uh, with each innovation in that realm the inboxes get smarter and there was a time when uh, you could kind of embrace personalization at scale and I think as higher ed advancement starts to do that unfortunately um, so has everyone else therefore it starts to look like a marketing promotion it gets trapped in the promotions inbox even though it's quote unquote personalization at scale. And and that's why, you know, we're making a big bet right now that you can personalize things at scale, uh, but you need to do so. Uh, unfortunately, with actual human beings, especially as you move up the, the giving pyramid. And so we're doing a lot of work in that regard right now. I know you're spending time um, focused on it, uh, but this idea of introducing um, effectively an inside sales like representative we're calling them donor experience officers with some of our inaugural partners including Oregon State University but the idea is really to package up strategies uh, technology and then support the training of the individuals to be able to personalize outreach at scale and really look at what a 1,000 person or 500 person or maybe even larger portfolio might look like at a time when the sector has been really focused on compressing portfolio sizes so Uh, Don't pull any punches. I'm curious to get your perspective on (laughs) just that topic and philosophically the idea of um, potentially expanding portfolios uh, through a combination of inside work and technology at a time when everybody else is focused on small portfolios.
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating question. Uh, So it seems like more and more institutions are adopting the quote unquote lively method after David Lively at Northwestern radical portfolio reduction down to anywhere from 50 to 70 prospects. I think that works particularly well at the major and principal gift level Uh, donors and prospects who uh, require a deep time investment and an extended cultivation horizon. Focusing the gift officer on a smaller number of prospects allows them to go deep, allows them to make multiple visits, allows them to really get to know the individual without worrying, oh, gosh, am I seeing all of my 120 prospects out there? I think below the major gift level, uh, there is a huge opportunity for these different in kind roles, these inside sales or digital gift officer or engagement officers, I believe Elon University called them type roles with massive portfolios, uh, tech driven tools to enable high volume outreach and lighter touch cultivation, but still sustained over the course of a year. So, you know, Jeff Martin showing up in your inbox, it doesn't just happen once, it happens five times, it happens 10 times, you actually get to know Jeff Martin albeit not through me getting on a plane and going out and taking two days out of the week to sit down and meet with you.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, it sounds, uh, it sounds pretty good to us. It sounds intuitive. The you know, the rest of the world has embraced this. I think the lively method as you call it, or the lively model makes a ton of sense for those highest capacity supporters. The more you can steward the relationship and the more you can inspire them to really stretch. No brainer. Um, but then what does that mean for everybody else who effectively is getting squeezed out of those portfolios and and how do we start covering a broader swath of the giving pyramid it 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 intuitively makes sense we're seeing early promising results yet we have many customers who are still spending half a million or a million dollars a year on a phone program that's declining and Mm -hmm. while they see the writing on the wall they don't know how to i mean it's the innovators dilemma they don't know how to try something new without kind of turning off something that is fairly predictable um and we just had a conversation like that last week where they're like we know we need to move in this direction but i can't stop the phone because i know it's going to bring me eight thousand gifts and i can't you know let the the donor count fall anymore so how do you think about navigating that kind of innovators dilemma you mentioned you you deal with some of the most innovative uh, advancement um, leaders but but there really is that friction when you're on the inside yeah. in higher
1: ed. It's incredibly tough. My, uh, my colleague, my brilliant colleague, gentleman by the name of John Tenus, uh describes it as trying to set sail with a foot in two boats. You just picture that, it's a, a tough proposition. The most effective institutions I've seen approach innovation in a pilot-driven sort of way Rather than going all in on a particular technology or a particular new approach, rather than saying, ah, we're going to shut down our phone bank and only do X, Y, or Z, we'll have a Snapchat annual fund or something like that, uh, they test small and they test often. They fail fast and they're focused on uh, what in the tech world uh, people call the uh, minimally viable product. Rather than trying to design something that has all the bells and whistles and every T is crossed, I dotted, they're trying to build something that will test a proof of concept. Does this seem to work? Is this worth further investment? Uh, And those institutions that are most innovative and most effective in this realm, they try a lot of things that don't work. While still holding that core steady, albeit oftentimes with uh, slight disinvestment starting to scale back uh, in areas that aren't working, they also live and die by prioritization. Are we calling donors who our data tells us are not going to give over the phone, which requires uh, a level of data, a depth of data, and an expertise. With data that many advancement shops lack, but more and more are starting to invest in. Our analysis found, uh, I think the number was 53% of advancement teams have at least one FTE dedicated to data analytics.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I i think the word that we just say over and over is hypothesis. You know, we've been talking to uh, to, to the board, uh, leadership at Oregon State, for example, starting last year on this topic. and. I don't know if 1,000 donors in a portfolio is the right number. But be- based on the data, it suggested that, uh, that we could start there and test there. We might find out that the right number is 400 or 500. We might find the right number is 2,000. We don't know. And I think being able to say, I don't know, versus, you know, sometimes we'll present on this at a conference and people want to debate 1,000. I'm like, let's, like, I have no idea. We'll see at the end of the year. But we had to start somewhere. We had to put a stake in the ground set sail with both feet in one boat, and then see what happens in course correct along the way.
1: One thing that, an idea that excites me, and at present it seems to just be an idea, uh, we're talking about smaller portfolios, we're talking about bigger portfolios, Right? what's the right portfolio size. I could see a future in which the portfolio is obsolete. In which rather than having 50 or 100 or 1000 donors that are assigned to me, who I have to track, I have to be accountable for, I'm instead given five or 10 donors a week uh, as kind of a task to cultivate Mm -hmm. someone that I am for that moment accountable to. That would imply a far greater degree of automation and much more advanced technology and AI than we have today. It would also uh, imply a much much bigger scope for the role of prospect management. Mm -hmm. Essentially, all of those cultivation decisions, all of those decisions about who is ready now for a touch, a visit, a proposal would come not from the gift officer, but rather from a central team, kind of air traffic control. Yeah. It's still an idea now. I've heard some of the uh, most forward-thinking advancement leaders talking about this. I have yet to see anyone fully yeah. put it in practice, but my research team is, is actually trying to to run it to ground right now.
0: It makes me think about a book that I read that was pretty meaningful early on called Predictable Revenue. I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but it's basically the idea that you should separate Uh, prospectors from closers. And uh, this has become pretty popular, uh, almost standard practice in the for-profit sales world. But I think that in the advancement space, that role is still quite blended. So you've got gift officers who are effectively prospecting and the science indicates that people who are great prospectors aren't necessarily great closers or vice versa. And so division of labor can bring efficiency. And, And I think what you were describing reminds me a lot of what you might think of as a business development representative which essentially is uh, a role in the in the sales world that we've employed where you're um you know scanning through various leads doing outreach and then trying to find out when it makes sense to effectively make an assignment and and yeah i mean i think the way this might play out is that down the road we've got a group you know a, a high-end team that might only have 10 or 20 prospects that that um can generate really significant revenue and then you might have uh, another team with 50 million dollar prospects, and then another team with, you know, 250, 25,000 dollar prospects, and so forth, uh, on down the giving pyramid uh, until the math maybe doesn't make sense anymore. We'll see. Let's table that for now. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we reconnected at the AGB uh, conference in San Diego. Uh, And they do a really nice job. It has become one of my favorite conferences of the year. They really treat, I think, partners and vendors like us very well and make us feel uh, like we're really a part of of the program. Uh, And in this case, we were a part of the program. You were a part of the program as well. And you uh, spoke with Steve Rosfeld, who you mentioned before, at the University of Cincinnati, uh, and Deanna Carlson Zink, who runs the North Dakota Foundation, and you did a talk on the five defining challenges of the next decade for advancement leaders. And so if you wouldn't mind just quickly kind of walking through those five points, uh, and why don't I just name them one by one and then we can just kind of get a quick reaction. And then if there's additional uh, ways that uh, our listeners who are interested can get access to the presentation or some of the research. I will defer to you there, but you had five defining challenges of the next decade. One, maximizing fundraiser efficiency. Two, right-sizing investments in digital transformation. Three, navigating the participation pipeline trade-off. Four, scaling and sustaining principal gift success. And five, realigning core mission and revenue growth. So I loved the, the presentation. I love the perspective of your uh, colleagues from cincinnati and north dakota Um, why don't you just take it away with point number one maybe even before you dive into that how did you come up with this idea is this a template you've used in the past or was it really a new approach as we enter 2020
1: yeah so the research methodology we used is uh one that we often use for our studies we poll our members about their biggest challenges we Get on the phone with over 100 advancement leaders. We do extensive data work to look for trends, literature reviews, so on and so forth. What was different about this year was typically we'll choose a scoped topic, a, a pipeline development or annual giving or alumni relations. But what we heard from our partners this year was my biggest challenge is planning for the future. The 2010s are ending, the 2020s are beginning, everything seems to be changing very quickly. We're at a turning point for advancement as an industry, and I need to think not just about tomorrow, but for about the next 10 years. I need to put a strategy in place that will both bring in short-term revenue as well as uh, lay the groundwork for a sustainable future. So we ended up broadening our scope beyond our typical single terrain and asking the advancement leaders that we were working with What are those challenges you're facing? What are the decision points that you feel, one, you need to work through today and two, will determine your success for a decade to come? And the five that you mentioned are the five things that came up most frequently that our advancement partners told us were most urgent for them. So to begin with the beginning, maximizing fundraiser efficiency, that was the top of the list. Uh, Across North America, gift officers, they are a very high ROI investment, but one study found that the median major gift officer brings in less than $500,000 every single year. There is a big performance differential between our top producers and everyone else in the shop. Uh, per our analysis, the top 25% of gift officers brought in more than four times what even the middle 50% did. So our partners were pushing us to diagnose the uh, the pain points, the challenges, the bottlenecks that were pre- preventing their middle performers from uh, elevating their performance from being in that uh, top quartile.
0: Yeah, and I, I was struck by that research, and it made me wonder... Is the fact that half of the gift officers raised less than 500,000 in 2018 a problem, or is it indicative of just how different portfolios are? If I'm a experienced principal gift officer with a mature uh, portfolio at a top institution, doesn't it make sense that I would raise 10 million a year while my junior level colleague who's, Technically, a major gift officer, but really has more like a leadership giving uh, portfolio, is raising five hundred thousand dollars. But if we're paying that gift officer a hundred thousand a year, or maybe one fifty fully loaded, might it still make sense to have intentionally some lower performing quote unquote gift officers in order to support broader coverage of the giving pyramid? What's your take on that? Yeah,
1: I I absolutely agree. Uh, there isn't one one size fits all type role for gift officers. Expectations vary based on the portfolio. The problem I see is that many of those more tenured senior gift officers, their portfolios are composed of more high net worth prospects than they can actually cultivate. So they'll be sitting on a hundred people who have capacity to give a million dollars and the next most tenured person will have a small handful of folks. So one big problem is that uh, we end up the, the system, the structure we've built ends up depressing performance across our shop and uh, under uh, capitalizing on the capacity we actually have in our prospect base because one tenured gift officer can only do so much. One of the things we found, though, is even when you control for portfolio composition and tenure, there's still incredible variance among gift officers. There are some gift officers who are sitting on incredibly valuable portfolios and have been in seat in 10 years who brought in zero dollars last year. Incredibly low performing. And conversely, when we looked, this surprised me, when we looked at gift officers in their first year Uh, in their role at the institution. For a lot of our analyses, we segment those individuals out, they're just getting up to speed. Uh, But there were a large number of them who were bringing in 500, 600,000, a million dollars. So there there does seem to be a bit of a skill gap here in addition to uh, something of a misaligned portfolio structure.
0: Got it, that's helpful. In spite of that skill gap, in spite of the varying degrees of performance, I saw in your research that there was an increase in major gift job postings of over 40% in the last couple of years. So uh, where is that talent going to come from?
1: Oh, that, <laughs> that's, that's the million dollar question. I think if either of us could answer that, we would be uh, uh, principal gift prospects in our own right.
0: Well, look, there... I, think, I mean, our point of view on that is uh, y- there should be way- a way to create more of a farm team approach. You, yep. you know, Every one of these advancement shops is surrounded by talent, surrounded mm-hmm. by students who've benefited from the mission of the institution, who can speak to the culture, who can speak to yep. uh, the impact. Why isn't there a natural talent pipeline from campus to advancement, junior, mid-level major over time. Uh, That's part of what we're betting on as we think about new roles like the donor experience officer, maybe like the business development representative type role that you were describing, Um, but that to us is just sort of the, um, you know, the the open question and really a tremendous opportunity.
1: And I would say that's absolutely right. There is a natural talent pipeline from the current student population. Students are graduating today saying, I want to be a development professional in a way that they didn't 20 years ago. That has been an incredibly positive development in the industry and with the formalization of for example, student discovery initiatives where we're sending sending current students out to meet with donors for engagement and light qualification visits with the growth in leadership annual gift officer positions and some of these different in-kind pipeline roles like the donor experience officer. There's more of a stepping stone for people to come into an entry-level donor-facing role. At the same time, this is a long-term investment. If you're putting up you know, two or three new major gift officer job postings. Now, the fact that we have uh, entry level folks or folks who haven't graduated from college yet who are on the path to becoming major gift officers doesn't help all that much. One of the things that we've seen a lot of advancement leaders focus on is transferable skills candidates, individuals who have worked in fundraising adjacent professions, uh, finance, sales, Uh, oftentimes bank managers, sometimes bartenders, I've actually heard, make great gift officers. Uh, For a lot of talent management teams, they won't look at a resume unless it lists three to five years of development experience. But for those shops that are best filling their talent gaps, they're actually looking beyond the industry and expanding the size of the pie overall.
0: Love it. Um, One of the uh, donor experience officers at Oregon State actually worked at enterprise uh, 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 rental centers before joining uh, Oregon State in their sales program. So very customer Mm -hmm. service oriented, dealing with objections, dealing with frustrations. And so that's just an example of of the kind of role, frankly, where if that resume came in for a major gift officer role, probably wouldn't get a look to be frank. Um, But by introducing new roles that are open to uh, those sort of transferable skills uh, it created an opportunity. Uh, and, and so that's, that's exciting to, to think about. The second challenge that you cited uh, which honestly was a little depressing for me, Jeff, I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. The next couple slides really, uh, really kind of, really kind of struck a chord, uh, was around right sizing investments in digital transformation. You showed um, a painful chart uh, that demonstrated that uh, as it, it relates to enterprise-wide digital strategy, higher ed is dead last in embracing uh, mm-hmm. new approaches relative to literally every other sector, which is what my investors told me would happen when I set out <laughs> 10 years ago to try to spark some digital transformation in this sector. Uh, uh, I'm, and, glad, and I'm glad you
1: didn't listen to them, Brent.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank um, But uh, there was a great quote from Mark Koenig at Oregon State that said, we're using the same playbook we always have. We're pretending digital transformation doesn't exist. What's your read on that? Obviously, in spite of higher ed lagging, you've got some innovative leaders who are talking about it, who want a solution.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of solutions out there nowadays, and digital is comprising a larger and larger share of advancement budgets. Uh, It is eliciting a bit of consternation from advancement. They know they're behind, but they don't see a clear path forward. Uh, I think the way Peter Hayashita at UC Riverside put it is, uh, when it comes to the vendor landscape, I don't see anyone emerging from the forest yet. I just see a forest. doesn't really see, you know, what is that path towards comprehensive digital strategy? One of the lessons, so for this particular challenge, uh, my research team, Uh, and I turned extensively to the private sector. Harvard Business Review was a great uh, resource. In particular, this one article that a Stanford business professor, Benham Tabrizi, and a few of his colleagues wrote called Digital Transformation is Not About Technology. Uh, So what what they did, I I think it's a smart conceptual shift. Uh, They said, don't let the tail wag the dog. Don't go out and pursue technology for technology's sake. Don't don't start out saying we need a machine learning strategy. Why? Because the machine learning will change the world. Start out with the business objective. Start out with the strategic imperative that you need to act on irrespective of the tool you use to do so and then back into okay, what do we need? What equipment, what infrastructure, what technology do we not have that we need to invest in to achieve that? And a couple uh, of those imperatives that we heard time and again in the research where I counsel our partners to invest more of their time in, uh, one is digitizing the constituent experience, making constituent facing touch points uh, digital first and digital friendly because especially with millennials who are now turning 40 years old, Uh, that is what they are expecting. These are very soon going to be our major gift prospects and if we're still approaching them in an analog way, we're going to lose them. The second is to, um, to use data to drive better decisions. There are a lot of slow decisions. There are a lot of gut decisions. I know there's been conversation on this podcast about art versus science. Putting that aside, the more information we have at our disposal, the better the decisions will make. Uh, So we look at some institutions. William and Mary is a great example. They built a geek squad of analysts who are schooled in R and Python to build predictive models for them. It essentially just helps their advancement leaders work smarter in addition to harder. Uh, And the last one is automating workflows and processes. There's lots of low ROI work that goes on in an advancement shop. We touched on earlier the fact that someone giving during a giving day for that to lead to uh, a series of touches, active management, personal outreach, there are a lot of people who have to intervene and take action, it's all very slow. Across industries, we're seeing automation transform tasks and workflows and job roles so that things move much faster and we can capture a lot of the return that these inefficiencies are currently taking away
0: great overview i think the uh the student worker whose job it is to go look up people on linkedin and ensure the data is up to date in the database is uh reflective of something that has to go away and and cannot be you know 10 years later the same thing we're doing um and so i'm optimistic that there will be uh, a lot of improvements in that regard uh and in many of the examples that you indicated The third big challenge, uh, which we could probably do a whole episode on, it's going to be hard to keep this one relatively brief, but it's navigating the participation pipeline trade-off. With scarce resources, advancement leaders must make tough choices. Talk about that.
1: Yeah, so I think of this as the future of annual giving section the future of annual giving challenge we touched on this a little bit earlier the so something a point that i've in passing made for a couple years now is every dollar that isn't spent on major gifts is a bit of a loss leader for the institution it might not actually be in the red but the opportunity cost of not investing in the front line not investing in high net worth prospects cultivation at a time when the U.S. economy is vaulting those high net worth households higher and higher, that's just a huge cost. So we have to be judicious in our investments in uh, or outside of major gift cultivation. That means annual giving. For a lot of advancement shops, They advancement leaders historically have looked to annual giving and said, okay, you're, you're going to both uh, drive our participation rates higher and bring in as many donors as possible and bring in as much revenue as possible from a smaller subset of those donors who have capacity to give leadership annual gifts who are major gift prospects for the future. But as we talked, especially with some of the uh, uh, more innovative, smarter annual giving professionals across North America, Lacey LaRue at University of Oregon, she was previously, previously at Oregon State, comes to mind, Uh, They remarked to me that uh, annual giving shops don't have the budget to do both participation and pipeline well. Both of those are very high cost endeavors, even to just maintain steady state performance. I mean, you look at participation rates for the past 25, 30 years, and it's just been in free fall. It can take millions of dollars to just hold that steady. Advancement leaders essentially have to make a choice about which of those two efforts they'll prioritize. Participation growth through things like giving days and give to get transactional stock campaigns and crowdfunding and the like, or uh, pipeline development through uh, ideally high volume, more scalable, but still somewhat limited one-to-one interaction with emerging capacity donors. Uh, It's something that many advancement leaders are uh, iffy about contending with, but I think it's a choice that increasingly uh, they're making. And honestly, I'm seeing more and more decisions towards the pipeline part of that trade-off.
0: Yeah. It, I always uh, think about how unique this sector is. If you think about donors as customers and as gift size, as revenue potential relative to the for-profit world, there are very few businesses that have customers who could transact at a $10 million plus level the same year that they have other customers who could transact Mm -hmm. at a $5 level and everything in between. And one of the sectors that I've been fascinated by and, and, and was really aggressive in using data early was the gaming space, casinos. Uh, and when you think about oh. the casino, right? They've got a high roller room, which is tailored to uh, the top of the pyramid, and then they have penny <laughs> slot machines and literally everything in between. And and it's always fascinated me. I you know why why don't why don't casinos only have high roller rooms? Why why do they decide to have penny slot machines? I'm sure that there's a 90-10 rule, where 10 percent of the the Casino customers are generating 90% of the revenue. Yet, with all of the data at their disposal, they have chosen to optimize for both quote unquote broad based participation and high touch, high end, major gift like gaming. Uh, And they've made the math work to be able to do all of that. And it makes me wonder uh, if there might be something advancement can learn from that space. So, if anybody here has connections to the gaming space, we are all (laughs) ears.
1: Yeah, I. I love that metaphor, what's unique about advancement is we oftentimes look at our equivalent of the penny slot machines as a way to bring in people who we hope will end up in the high roller rooms, uh, which I think is probably a little bit less the case with casinos. We think of annual giving as a funnel, as a pipeline, and the bottom line, my push to our partners is to make sure that your strategy, staffing, structure, Is optimized to treating that like a pipeline, so that we're not just bringing in five dollar donors for the sake of five dollar donors, and we're not losing five dollar donors who will become hundred thousand dollar donors if we cultivate them correctly.
0: Right, and I suspect that part of uh, you know part of the data driven approach in that space in the in the gaming space is of the thousand people who played the penny slots, and we are able to get a swipe card in some kind of email address, or personally identifiable information, who are the 10, 50, 100 that should be comped up to the next level? Um, And so, again, we're trying to research more uh, about that space to see if there's anything we can learn. Um, But I think that pipeline participation trade-off is going to continue to persist, especially when there are uh, more than a handful of presidents who don't really care, they just want higher participation. The board wants to beat so-and-so peer institution or wants donor count to grow up. To, uh, and, and when you get that sort of mandate, it's hard not to, not to respond when you're in a leadership position. Challenge number four, scaling and sustaining principal gift success. It's sort of the other end of the spectrum uh, from, from the last point that we just talked about. Um, what, are your, what are your initial thoughts uh, or, or high level view on the principal gift scaling needs?
1: Yeah, principal gifts, huge opportunity for more and more institutions. We looked at the percentage of schools that were bringing in gifts, at least a million dollars, of at least five million dollars. And both those figures have grown by I think, double digits over the past few years. Principal gifts are within reach of uh, a greater number of institutions than ever before. And it's created a kind of funny conundrum, a good problem to have which is there are more prospects to manage than we have capacity for, or that we've built our principal gift strategy to cultivate. Uh, We spoke with Rebecca. Let me just rephrase that.
0: Evertrue has too many amazing prospects than we know what to do with. EAB has too many incredible potential forum members, and you just can't get to them all. How do you solve that problem in your world or ours?
1: Yeah, it'll look so you can you can apply that problem all up and down the giving pyramid and the solution will look slightly different for each tier at the principal gift level. Those are donors who want a high degree of involvement. They want exposure to senior leaders. They want to be in at the ground floor. Uh, One of the smartest strategies we saw, it actually came from uh, Peter Fardy at Dalhousie. He hired a principal gift strategy manager so that when he, the chief advancement officer, was spending his time on principal gifts, he was spending it with donors. All of the uh, pre-work, internal coordination, everything that went into cultivation or stewardship, that's handled by his strategy manager, incredibly talented individual, who liaises with internal stakeholders and drafts strategies and writes up emails to send to donors and all that so that he can spend the vast majority of his time with donors and ultimately that means he can see many more of them. It creates economies of scale and expertise so that neither of them incur switching costs and moving between different tasks. And it means that his reach can be so much further, so much broader than his counterparts at other institutions where the chief advancement officer has to do everything uh, associated with principal gifts. So that that sort of force multiplier position to better focus senior leaders uh, outside of the institution on our donors is something that I think is brilliant.
0: So time is our most precious resource, especially when you're dealing with yes. principal gifts. Got it. Um, the fifth and final challenge we're going to talk through today is uh, realigning core mission and revenue growth. And, and I think this is sort of the, the big idea. And we've heard some, some concerns among certain advancement leaders who have uh, revenue targets for campaigns, but they don't feel like they have ideas to back up the revenue targets. Uh, meanwhile, there are other uh, scenarios where truly transformational record-setting gifts are uh, emerging to make some pretty big bets through the mission of higher education. So what's your view on this topic?
1: Yeah, there has been uh, incredible inflation in campaign goals. We looked at, as part of our research, we looked at campaign goals across the 2020s. We have fairly extensive data on that. And on average, they're it's something like 95% higher than they have been in the past five years. And this five year period, 2015 to 2019, has been an incredible one for advancement. So the idea that we can aim twice as high as uh, we are right now, is an audacious one, it's an ambitious one. It's one that we heard from some of our advancement partners uh, is pushing them to almost scramble for big ideas to bring to donors, which has worked very well. Big idea driven principal gift fundraising has led to advancement shops closing gifts of unprecedented size, but they're starting to be a little bit Of uh, questioning or pushback from institutional leaders from some advancement leaders. I think the way uh, one of the folks we work with put it is, you know, I encounter the question, how much of that $3 billion campaign goal actually supports the core mission of the university. Uh, as opposed to going to purposes that extend the mission, but leave uh, core parts like uh, the uh, you know, operating revenues, student success, uh, student debt, untouched. So one of the things we looked at here is how advancement shops, yes, continue to pursue higher and higher campaign goals, larger and larger gifts, but ensure that they're aligning a portion of their activity with the core needs of the university. So for example, adding unrestricted fundraising metrics into major gift office or portfolios or uh, brokering collaborations between advancement and enrollment so that the uh, top-notch marketing uh, strategies that advancement is using, they're also benefiting the enrollment pipeline and bringing in tuition revenue. Or institutions launching uh, at-risk student mentoring programs, tapping the alumni volunteer community to bring up the graduation and retention rate for the institution uh, or the uh, vast number of institutions. Brown University is one of them that are launching big student debt minimization efforts to keep the cost of college low above and beyond all of the uh, restricted donor designated passion principal gifts that they're bringing in.
0: So those are the five uh, key topics that we think might define the next decade in the advancement sector. I guess if you had to synthesize it down into your level of, um, I don't know, optimism or concern, what are you most, <laughs> what are you most excited about? What are you worried about um, as you think about this this next decade? I mean, there is a part of me that wonders: will we look back in twenty years and see the growth of the capital campaigns? And somebody will plot a chart saying that was a sign of the bubble. You know, that was the higher ed bubble. Uh, and and uh, given the consolidation that's already started to happen, it happened, some of the mergers and, and effectively acquisitions going on in the higher ed sector, um, it, it is going to be a fascinating next, next 10 years. But I do have a, a sense that uh, maybe 20 years from now, it's going to look a lot different than it does today.
1: Yeah, I'll start with my concern, which I will leave me ending on a positive note, I guess. Excellent. Uh, my concern is that, so the U.S. economy in the past 10 years, the world economy, has gone through a transformation that has vaulted the wealthiest individuals to uh, greater and greater wealth. And at the same time, this I actually don't see many people talking about, but there's been a cultural shift among high net worth households. To a point where philanthropy is, it's almost trendy. People have always been giving, but now it is something that defines what it means to be an ultra high net worth individual, the giving pledge uh, and the like. My concern for advancement is across the next 10 years, the economy and society and culture might shift in a way that draws back the philanthropy of the wealthiest individuals and as a result undercuts revenue growth because a vast mass majority of uh, higher ed advancement, higher ed fundraising dollars come from a few individuals giving very, very big gifts. So honestly, I would not be shocked if we look back in 10 years and 20 years and say, oh, the peak Mm -hmm. for revenue, uh, much like Uh, we had a peak for participation. The peak for revenue was in 2022 or 2025 or whenever. Uh, That is what I'm concerned about. What I am excited about is the fact that there is more emphasis and urgency around building sustainability, building a pipeline and ensuring that the success we have seen in the past five years, and hopefully we'll see across the next five, isn't a a one and done deal. Uh, We may, honestly, 15, 20 years down the road, we may be bringing in less inflation adjusted net revenue, but I suspect it'll be from more individuals giving larger gifts. There'll be less of an hourglass in our uh, pyramids And ultimately, advancement will be in a a more sustainable position that can weather ups and downs a lot more effectively.
0: That is a nice optimistic vision uh, to close on. Uh, Jeff, before we do wrap up today, and I can't thank you enough for sharing your perspective, I know you've had good mentors and colleagues along the way. Anybody you want to give a shout out to uh, who might be listening?
1: Yeah, sure thing. Uh, First off, would be Liz Rothenberg. She's our managing director. I've worked with Liz for I think she brought me onto a team in mid 2012 right before we launched the Advancement forum uh, and she has been an incredible partner uh, and thought leader uh, and friend for many years and I'd also uh, point to actually one of Brown University's own Seth Rockman who's my thesis advisor when I was back in school he made me he made me excited about research he taught me to do research uh, I would say he made me love learning, but I already loved learning. He, he made me look at learning in a new way uh, and actually like, he made me like logging 10 hour days and deep in the windowless archives of uh, the Rockefeller library with microfilm machines. Uh, So yeah, Liz and Seth definitely appreciate it.
0: Love it. Uh, So if our listeners want to learn more about EAB or learn more about your work, are there, Uh, any resources that you would point them to, or if they want to stay in touch with you, what's the best way to do that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, Quick, John, over to eab.com. We'll show you a a lot of the resources we have. Some of them are, uh, you know, a paywall, but there are quite a few things that we have out there. Countless infographics on uh, what distinguishes high ROI advancement shops or top performing gift officers, the occasional white paper you can download. So, Go peruse our online resources. If you want to know more, uh, just drop me a line. I'm at uh, so my name is Jeff Martin, and I'm at jmartin at eab.com. I look forward to hearing from you.
0: Yeah, look, the eab.com site it's a little bit like that first Equinox experience. They're going to give you that <laughs> guest pass, give you a taste for it, uh, but ultimately, uh, I think you will see that the experience uh, warrants the investment. Uh, and Jeff, thank you for sharing so openly with us over the years, uh, with the sector. Uh, and I have no doubt that I will see you uh, at a Sheraton, at a case conference sometime soon.
1: Yep, that, that is for certain. Looking forward to it, Brent.
0: All right. Thanks, Jeff. Cheers.
1: Take care.